My guest today is Sir Kevin Collins, Chief Executive of the Education Endowment Foundation, a former Chief Executive of Tower Hamlets, a former National Director of the Primary Literacy Strategy and a former teacher. Kevin, that's quite a CV. Uh Uh, Well, I'm quite old. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to talk a lot about research in in your role at the EEF, but touch on some other subjects as well. I just wanted to start by um, looking at whether your aim at the EEF or whether the aim of research in general should be about absolutes? I mean, are we trying to find what works? Or to paraphrase Dylan William, are we sort of looking for what works somewhere? I think we're absolutely not looking um, to nail what works. There's no absolutes in this. It's always about trying to, if you like, reduce your uncertainty Mm -hmm. to get a bit more confidence about what you do. And the idea of the evidence approach is just to uh, bring some more rigour and um, transparency to that. Mm. Uh, The transparency is important as the rigour because uh, we're trying to open up the the evidence agenda and say, well, we can all be part of this. We can all understand it. We we can all contribute to it. It doesn't go, it's it's not a dark art that goes on somewhere in a university. It's something we all can be involved in. Mm. And I'm very keen that the practitioners, as many as possible, are involved in this process of generating our collective knowledge and wisdom. There's an interesting stat, isn't there, about how many teachers have been part of an EEF study of some sign. It's, it's yeah, a huge it's, proportion. Yeah, the, the, the stats are, are pretty startling, really, from uh, six years ago we started this work. And if you look at the 154 studies that we've launched in England, um, it's about one in three schools now mm-hmm. that have been involved in a trial we've uh, supported. I think, that's, I think that's stunning. I think that's great to see people signing up, getting involved, uh, all the effort and all the work that takes, whether you're a control or a treatment school, as most of those are randomised control trials, to get to a point that one in three schools are involved, I think is fantastic. And what's your view on randomised control trials as a, as a methodology? Is that is that a the best way that you can see of doing this research at the moment? It's one way. Mm. Um, it does have uh, a particular standing and position in research because of the way you're... Um, you're controlling for bias, you know, you're, you're literally randomly assigning the opportunity. Having said that, it's not the only way, and there are, there are imperfections as ever, as, as ever. We know the kind of schools, by their nature, that even sign up to be part of a trial are already a sample of schools. That's not every school. Okay. Um, we know that randomization, randomized trials work really well for a neat little intervention about does it make a difference you teach kids to play chess. When you come to big, complex, moving parts stuff around school improvement, it doesn't seem to work so well. We have to find other ways. So we don't use it as an only method. We use it as a preferred. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in every randomized trial we, we run, we also um, have a big process study behind it okay. because the numbers alone don't tell the whole story. You need more than that. Mm. And, I mean, you, you covered a vast uh, array of, of, of interventions, of tools, um, the big growth mindset study, I think it's still ongoing, and you've done you know, flip learning recently. Which one of those do you think surprised you? Which one of those do you think uh, has had the most traction outside of, outside of the sort of normal people who consume your research? I think what's interesting for me, in, increasingly, it's not a... It's a single study kind of interests me for a, a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really interests me is when you start gathering them in bundles... So the clutch of studies we did around the best use of teaching assistance as a bundle mm. begins to tell you something interesting about, that, um, about the use of that amazingly important resource in our schools. Mm. The clutch of studies around technology that tell you again and again that uh, technology 
in itself doesn't make that much of a difference. It's how we deploy it and use it and integrate it and align it with what we're trying to teach. Mm. The clutch of studies that tell me that um, the way we talk to children, uh, the way we engage them in uh, metacognitive kind of conversations that drive up their thinking um, seem to be really important. So it's not the individual studies, I'm happy to talk about them, it's, it's the bundles that mm. really start exciting me because they give us sort of themes of knowledge. I think that's where the promise lies rather than there ever being a sort of silver bullet. We're going to have one golden study that jumps out above all others. Yeah. I think it's going to be themes of knowledge. Um, and that's why we've now organised our stuff around these 11 themes of education, which is more and more where we're clustering the learning. It's interesting you say that, isn't it? Because a lot of the research debate centres on, you know, we have this sort of celebrity culture mm. around research. You know, people will talk about John Sweller or the people will talk about Dylan William, and it's this... That you know, it's a, quite a monocular view of, of their work, and I know one of the res uh, a prominent researcher on Twitter, uh, Christian Bakova, always makes a point of saying, "Ah, but have you seen this mm. other part of their research?" Mm. Do you think that sort of um, single hit, you know, we must do cognitive load, or we must do uh, uh, sort of interleaving from Robert Bjork's mm. research, and it's looked at in isolation? You seem to be saying that we, there's a bigger picture around that research and how those bits of research interconnect. Well, I guess it, um, I think I absolutely agree with that. And I think that tracks back to the nature of teaching that um, it's, uh, it's the orchestration of a whole range of uh, knowledge at once the teacher is trying. That's why it's so complicated. Mm. Uh, you know, y you have to orchestrate a whole set of things all at once, spinning in plates, if you like. So the, the single individual studies that, that a particular academic might get obsessed by are, are kind of interesting for them, but mm. that's because of the world they live in. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to keep as much of my, uh, uh, of my thinking in, in the space where a teacher operates. So how do you assemble this in a way that ma matters for me in my classroom? What's the general knowledge told me about the way I space learning or the way I think about the memory or the way I think about the, the use of phonics to promote uh, literacy? It's in the round. I, I'm, I'm really, um, I think, obsessing about single studies um, is not a good way to generate either policy yeah. or to generate uh, a thoughtful approach to teaching and learning. It's having a, 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 a well-informed toolkit, body of knowledge that kind of comes together. I mean, that's why for us the, uh, the meta-studies and the synthesis of evidence, the, the bringing it in clusters together, tells you more than one-off single study. Because what I can always promise you is that when one person does a single big study on one particular narrow item, somebody down the track is going to do another study that confounds yeah. uh, that particular study. And I guess, is that how you'd want someone to, to use the, the toolkit, the EF toolkit, to see this body of evidence, have that consciously in their mind, and then apply it in the way they best see fit for the children in front of them? Yeah, I guess it's about being evidence-backed or evidence-informed. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I'm absolutely desperately trying to avoid is the idea that evidence becomes another stick to beat teachers with, someone else telling you what to do. Mm. Because all we can ever do uh, is tell you what worked, not what will work necessarily. Yeah. Um, and from an understanding of what worked and the nature of the places where it worked, that will give you a, a greater degree of confidence or not about what, what relevance it has to you in your school. Mm. You know, uh, you, you have to assemble the... Uh, uh, the wisdom, the knowledge coming from evidence, from judgment, from, from a whole range of things to design and create programs and 
and, and, and ways of working that are right for your children and your staff. Yeah. And is it, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost become, as you said, like a stick to beat teachers with. It's yeah. become almost an arms, you know, a research arms race. How many, how many citations can you get on, on what you're doing in the classroom? Is that, is that a healthy direction to go in in general? And is that an extreme end that you'd rather not go to? Or is, is the whole journey towards this, you know, sites, you know, footnoting your classroom each day or your lesson planning, is that, is that a dangerous place to go to? I don't think it's so much dangerous. I just think it's, um, I just think it's not r realistic. Uh, I, I, I don't think it f sits comfortably with my experience of walking in uh, to a classroom, getting ready to teach every day. It's not how it is. It's not the real world. I mean, the, 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 I, th I think the obligation of those of us involved in evidence and research, which is a total luxury and joy, <laughs> yeah. we're not doing the hard job every day of actually, you know, working with the children. That's where we need to think. That the obligation is to try and find ways of gathering. Uh, insights which support teachers in their learning, so in order for children to learn more, mm -hmm. it, it's not—it's not a you know—it's—it's it's selfish and indulgent to go on journeys for yourself without thinking about the nature of the impact and relevance to other people, mm. and and that's partly because of um, the huge issues we face. I mean, in the past, I think too much research has been. Um, aligned to the wrong incentives. It's about serving each other. You scratch mine, I'll scratch yours. What I kind of flippantly and probably rudely call a kind of the incest of kind of, uh, of, yeah. of, of academic uh, research. It's written in documents that aren't accessible and in language that is impenetrable. Um, and often it's been about things that don't matter to teachers. And I, and I think that's been a huge problem. Yeah. So what we've been trying to do is create a bridge, if you like, between the needs of the profession, the questions they're asking, and promoting the kind of research that uh, is accessible and informative and supportive to teachers and to schools. On that sense, I mean, at the, at the uh, girls' schools conference earlier this week, uh, one of the academics who was speaking said, you know, I think he coined the phrase neurobollocks. Uh, yeah, know, said, I read that. Yeah, so he's saying that actually we can't say a lot about education from, from neuroscience. I mean, you're in a position where you're sort of the, the, the bridge between the academic world and, and the classroom. How do you view these these sort of fields around neuroscience yeah. and that not not are sometimes not explicitly about the act of teaching, but more about the brain and how we learn? So 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 that's a hugely interesting um, inquiry for people, and and I think it's great that people are constantly asking those questions, but making that relevant uh, and bringing that to the life of teachers to support children to learn is is a huge kind of gap. There's no necessary kind of join up there. Yeah. So uh, a good example, w when we decided together in partnership with the Wellcome Trust to look at neuroscience and education, the first question we, the first thing we did was conduct uh, a commission, a large review of the evidence. Yeah. And we, we commissioned it on the basis of what is the most relevant neuroscience that relates to learning and at the same time, what is the neuroscience that is ready for use in classrooms? Yeah. Because there's lots, particularly in the States, there's a whole lot of lab-based stuff, yeah. which is interesting if you're working with a bunch of psychologists, PhD students, and they're your test case. But actually, that's not really necessarily the same as if you're working in a class with 30 young mm -hmm. people or kids, and you're trying to manage that complexity. So um, we asked the question, what do we know about what's relevant and ready and near classroom practice? We then opened our doors and asked for applications, and together with very highly skilled neuroscientists, ourselves, the Wellcome Trust, 
we went through the applications and found half a dozen or so that were based on solid neuroscience. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was good neuroscience rather than neuro <laughs> the, 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 the other kind. <laughs> and at the same time, it was ready to be tried out in the classroom. So a study we're doing, for example, at the moment on space learning yeah. is really interesting. What do we know about the, the duration of learning and how you create gaps between learning, which is hugely, hugely influenced by neuroscience and um, that makes a difference. So we're trying that out in real classrooms. Likewise, the, one, the study we're doing on uncertain rewards. What do we know about incentives to be more motivated and engaged? Because we know that uncertain rewards has a strong neuro basis. So it's trying to link the two things together, the classroom practice as well as the science. So you're almost doing, you're, you're choosing the research in the same way that you want teachers to use the research. It's through the filter of the, the teacher, well, teacher and learner experience in the classroom. Yeah. The, the process is yeah. the same. Well, this takes you back to the RCT. You see, this is why our studies are large. You know, for us, 90 schools in a study is not unusual. Mm. Now, if you go to some of the, uh, you know, some studies people will have heard a lot about, read a lot about, had a huge amount of influence. When you dig, dig, dig down, it turns out that it was a very small study with, uh, you know, a couple of hundred kids. Yeah. Now, we, we like to do things at a significant scale, so we can see that they do operate genuinely in classrooms. Yeah. And if they're not ready for that, we'll fund what we call a pilot, just to check that it, it can operate in the normal English classroom. Yeah. And if it can't pass muster at that point, it doesn't fit within the context, we won't even go that, we won't even go there. We'll say, look, this has got to be something that fits within our culture and our way of working. And that after a pilot of testing that, we'll then move into an efficacy trial, which gives us enough power, enough number of schools to detect an effect. Mm. And then if it works at that scale, which is kind of one in five at the moment, are coming through that with cost effective, with enough kind of confidence, we then scale it even bigger and do it again an effectiveness trial. Now you get into hundreds of schools. Mm. So you're constantly trying to move things along that pipeline to, to get bigger and bigger confidence and bigger numbers to get greater confidence that actually this wasn't chance, this genuinely was that thing that was making a difference and enough of a difference with a low enough cost that it's worth other people thinking about. Mm. And then uh, when you get to that end stage, uh, you, you, you calculate an effect size in, in months progress. Yeah. And uh, there's been a few murmurings and a few criticisms around where, how accurate that, or how useful, sorry, that, that month's progress terminology is. Could you want to talk a bit about why you decided to use month's progress and how, how that is calculated? So a great deal of our work is informed, as you know, by the Teaching and Learning Toolkit that was developed at the University of Durham with um, Steve Higgins, who's kind of needs a huge amount of uh, acknowledgement for his work and all of this. The months of progress really is to try and say that when you calculate difference, you can always use some sort of statistical in measure. Um, the question about that is how engaging or how um, relevant is that to, to, uh, to a teacher or a school leader? So we were trying to find, if you like, a currency mm -hmm. that really speaks to the job that you do. Um, you might say in medicine, is it, is it life expectancy? Mm -hmm. Is it quality of life? in education, it's how much more progress do kids make in a school year when I adopt this approach compared to that approach. Now when, when you take that of course, it comes with a set of, um, co you know, there, there's a compromise you're making. So from the, from the detail of a statistical measure, you're moving to something a bit broader. You're taking one age of kids as the standard, so we're taking 11 year olds as our point of reference, mm. and yet we know that it's probably easier 
to get shift when children are younger than when they're older. So you're, 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 you're losing something there in the nuance. But we find that overall, the uh, creating, um, simplifying, not making it simple, but simplifying to promote access to the uh, evidence has been a large part of our success. Uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't come to a degree with a, there are caveats and you lose some precision, uh, but I think that's worth it if you're buying people into the principle and to the, uh, the literacy, if you like, of evidence to inform their work. And I guess if you're expecting them to use it in a, in a holistic way and not a prescriptive way, then again, that, that sort of compromises exactly. to find out in that. Yeah, and you have to go deeper. We, we, we say, you know, we say about the toolkit, it's so essential that you always go deeper, you use it as a starting point for a conversation, not to tell you what to do. Mm. And, and you always think about the, um, the fact that it's a range, that underneath those headline numbers, those averages are ranges that you need to really get your head around. Mm. And one of the other sort of concerns is the, the lack of uh, research around SEND, uh, yeah. or not specifically special schools, but also included um, you know, SEND issues that you will have in a mainstream school, for example. Is that, a, is that an area that some of those compromises you make, you have to compromise too far? or? It is a bit of a, it, it's something that, 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 that does concern me and worries me because the, we know that we include in the studies children with special educational needs because we know the schools include a range of children. Yeah. Um, the model requires, um, if you're going to pronounce on the impact for a particular group of kids, you need enough of those children in the study to be able to detect uh, with significance the effect. Um, because we're, we, we're never, um, we're working with the general school population, we can talk about the interactions, we call them, for certain groups of kids, but it's, we don't uh, assemble enough of a particular narrow group, if you like, around one uh, uh, dimension of special educational needs to be able to really power it to that group. Mm. Uh, but we are we're, re we're we're really working on this and thinking through this, and there are there are developments uh, to our work which I think will help us say much more about that going forward. But we are conscious of that, and we we we, we, we and we do we work with with a range of children. We just don't say anything uh, significant about a particular narrow, but particular groups that are relatively small. In the I population. guess you're, you're dealing with a, a typical class in a in a yeah. primary school, for example, that might have three or four children with special yeah. education needs and they're included in that they're study. always included but specific uh, children yeah. send is, is is a task yeah. you're sort of yeah. getting to grips with a little bit. exactly exactly and we and we always have um for example we've got lots of studies that look at children who are targeted if you like for that second wave of teaching mm. but it's that I, I guess it's the particular um category of children that we're we're not able to say something about, well, this is particularly powerful for children who may have been diagnosed with um, this specific learning difficulty mm. because we just don't have enough of them in the, in the sample. Um, yeah. And I, I guess as, as, as an organisation, obviously, you're interested in social mobility and as part of that, you know, a lot of this research is about getting everyone, you know, helping everyone achieve. Mm. A lot of the articulation or discussion around research uses children who are eligible for free school meals or the most disadvantaged children depending on how they term it as a sort of reasoning to dictate that this research should be used because of because these children are disadvantaged you need to listen to x and do y 
is that a skewing of of the debate slightly is that it, i mean is that ignoring quite a lot of nuance there or is that exactly what we should be doing in terms of research no i think there's huge problems with with that articulation um so if you take for example attainment in england schools and you look at the what's called classically the tail mm. um the bottom 20 percent if you like of attainment only about a third of those kids are disadvantaged so what we see in England are we see disadvantaged children distributed across the achievement curve. Mm. But when you look at the, um, at all points, they seem to be more likely to be di distributed um, at the lower points. They're more, they're, they're more likely to be there. So, you know, I'm as interested in moving a disadvantaged child who has the, um, the, the, the aptitude and the motivation to move from an A, a B to an A as I am trying to help a child from low-income families um, at the other end of the scale. Mm. So what, what we're trying to do is promote the mobility of disadvantaged children right across the distribution. We're trying to move them all up if we can. Because um, whichever way you cut it and look at it, um, it seems to me that the system doesn't um, serve those children as well. Yeah. That they don't make as much progress is the critical point, their progress rates. Particularly when you look at them at the end of primary to the end of secondary actually. So we see um, in the missing talent kind of study done by the Sutton Trust, you'll see um, high attaining disadvantaged children at the end of primary school being overtaken through secondary school by children who were lower attaining at the end of, second, at the end of primary school. You know, we have the famous work done by uh, um, at the end of um, early years where you see uh, lower attaining affluent children overtake higher attaining disadvantaged children from three to five. Mm. So wh why is it that we don't seem to be able to uh, support the progress of disadvantaged children as well as the progress of other children? This is why the gap widens in England schools. Um, and it's, um, although we've seen narrowing of the gap, we still see for individual, you know, we see for cohort within our country, the gap widen. Uh, so I, I, I'm still very, uh, Social mobility, I think, is the great issue. I think the progress of children from low-income families is the great challenge of our generation of teachers. And particularly, the progress of children from, um, if you like, the, um, the white English working and non-working poor families. Um, that's where there's a huge issue about their progress. But in our studies, of course, we include all children. Uh, but we look for that interaction. What improve outcomes for all? but particularly improve outcomes for low-income kids. Do you think the answers are going to be found in how you teach a child, though? I mean, is it the case that if you use X technique for in terms of pedagogy and Y technique in terms of behaviour, then that child from a disadvantaged background will improve? Or, or is it that unless you have a real grasp of the social factors that are happening outside the school. I mean, there, there's quite a bit of split debate on that, and I've been to schools where teachers will tell you both sides of that. Do you have any, you know, in your position, do you see any heavier weighting on each? So I think the, um, the hypothesis I'm personally building around this, I think there is um, there's something about the, uh, in early years, there's something about our, our attention to language and communication, self-regulation, self-control, and parental involvement engagement. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think disadvantaged children learn differently, but I think you're trying to, in some areas, um, 
you have to find a way of organizing your provision to help them make more progress more quickly. Now that means that the structure, the nature of the way you do it um, has to be thought through mm. because uh, you might not come to school with so much education capital. You come with everything else, you come ready to learn, you come desperate to learn, you come with families with just as much aspiration and desire for their children. But if you think of even the number of words you've heard or the kind of conversations you've had mm. in your home, they're slightly different. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you compensate for that degree in the way that you organize provision? It might mean you need to be slightly more structured than you ordinarily would want to be, but you're compensating for something, so you have to restructure. I think in lit primary schools, I'd never take a step back from the literacy and numeracy skills have to be secure. Mm. We know over and over again that kids who aren't reading as we, at the level we expect by the end of primary school, they just don't go on to succeed at secondary school. It just doesn't catch up. So we have to get those fundamental blocks in place as well as dispositions to learning and attitudes to learning. And, 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 in, and in secondary schools, I think that, um, and it tracks all the way back, but just highlighting, I think there's something about, and it is an ed education jargon, there is something about metacognition, there is something about the direct attention to having more control and responsibility for your own learning, to be able to monitor, to be able to regulate, to be able to plan your own learning, um, I think, and review your own learning, which we can ad address. I think these are some of the fallouts, if you like, of um, perhaps coming from families or backgrounds where there isn't the same level of education capital because your own family haven't been through high level of education themselves, which is obviously highly correlated to wealth and disadvantage. So I think it's trying to understand not people learn differently, but where you need to emphasize or nuance the pedagogy t to support people who come from different backgrounds. It's interesting that a couple of weeks ago we had Professor Maggie, Maggie Snowling on talking yeah. about d dyslexia, and she was talking that at an early stage there was a general language acquisition problem, so you, can't, yeah, they, you have to label it possible dyslexia. And she was talking a lot about academic self-concept, and if you are ha receiving intervention or you're getting a different style of teaching to your peers, you do notice even at a young age. And how wary do we need to be about the narrative around disadvantage and how, as a teacher, we react to those children? You know, we may think we're doing the, the best we can because we're intervening in a certain way, but that concept of academic self-concept, if you like, how crucial is that in how we react? Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really important and really interesting, this question, that... Um, the, ident the, 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 the sense of the self as learner, I think the self-efficacy almost in all mm. of this is, um, is, is, is very important. We, we know, for example, that as you get older, disadvantaged children are more likely to believe they can't, whereas some children strut around the world with total confidence and belief that they can. Yeah. Uh, and they happen to come from one kind of background generally, or, to, or more, all too often, not always. So um, I'm, I guess I'm more at the point of saying, um, most of my education teaching has been within deprived communities or mixed communities. Um, I, 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 you know, I think it's okay to teach all children as if they have need in these areas, mm. and to um, and to work at that. That's why I quite I like the mastery model. I like the idea of um, of securing the progress of all children before you move on, mm. and not allowing uh, uh, you, you, that the whole thing just to be to be spread out so widely because of uh, a few racing ahead. I think when we've done that in the past, 
we've been beguiled as well because these children don't have a deep understanding. They've just kind of raced ahead. Mm. And in fact, getting everybody secure and deep wouldn't do anyone any harm. And focusing on these deeper concepts of metacognition and awareness and agency, if you like, of the learner would be great for all, and securing the real knowledge mm. would be great for everybody. Um, and so perhaps, um, uh, you know, the disadvantaged children would definitely benefit from that, I think. But so would everybody, perhaps, to be more secure. As a former chief executive of Tower Hamlets, you talked before about the, the, the school having to reach further into the life of the student to, mm. to help them. How, how far is feasible? How far perhaps is ethical? Um, and how far is, is possible, I guess? Yeah. I don't think so much I'm nervous about schools reaching further. I think it's more about the, the system being more comprehensive. Mm. You know, it's a bit like when you're um, 5 to 16, there is this incredible warm embrace of the school and the curriculum and the services all around you. It's as you get older, the system seems to, quite rightly in a way, but for some kids worryingly, kind of move away from you. So if mm. you're 19 and you haven't got level two qualifications, now what? Well, the future of adult education in this country has, 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 has been dramatically reduced. Mm. You, know, you, you, you don't have the skills at 19, if you haven't got level two, to get on a level three to apprentices. You can't go into the mass professions. Where do you go? What happens year after year to that group of 200,000 people? Um, so it's, it, it's a more, dare I say, because it's not fashionable, but it's a more cradle-to-grave concept that we have to support people to get the skills they need to participate fully, not only as people that contribute economically, but as future parents themselves, all of that. So um, I, I worry about the kind of cliff edges of it. Likewise, in early years, um, I think the provision of 15 hours, potentially 30, into two-year-olds has been one of the great revolutions since I started. I still don't think we've got yielded the benefit from that because we haven't invested properly in it. We've mm. created access but not quality. So anything we can do now to focus on building great early years um, uh, and in, I include reception in all of that and great post-16, that's the agenda. I'm personally a bit tired of structural questions around 11 to, uh, 5 to 16. I'm, I'm over it. Yeah. Uh, and I think our schools are pretty good. I think we need to, you know, we need, we, we've, got great, we've got some of the greatest schools in the world. I, I'm, I believe that. We haven't got enough. That there's just too much variation. That's yeah. the challenge there. But before they get to school, and 16 to 18, I don't think we can really hold our heads up. That bit is not working. Those bits are not working. So, Kevin, thank you very much. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.